0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show.
1: Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. And, you know, people have these buzzwords. People have these buttons that are that they push. But you know, the problem, the real problem I have with that you got buttons that somebody can push to anger you or buttons that if you're a member of one of these teams or buttons that somebody can push to make you happy and they ain't even your buttons. See, if I got buttons, yeah, I got buttons, believe me. I got we all got our buttons, right? I got buttons that somebody can push that'll make me angry or buttons that somebody can push that'll make me it make me happy. Certainly, certainly but I want to believe that they're my buttons. Maybe I'm wrong, but I want to do my best to ensure that I have internal checks and balances to know that they're my buttons. One of the things that I know if I'm part of a team and everybody on the team can cheer, if I can tweet something, yes. You know what I remember? i never forget this. It's when I stopped the show, uh, watching these award shows. There was some award show in Hollywood, right? And somebody just came out and walked up to the... Um, up to the uh, mic and just said, F Trump. And everybody went crazy and the crowd cheered. And I thought, that's cult-like to me. You know, that you would just, okay, my team, my group has a particular individual, we, a set of individuals. And all I have to do, it's almost like some kind of a religious ritual. All I gotta do is walk up to my group and say that name, Trump or Putin or whatever, right? And everybody in my group will just cheer. They will—they don't even know why. F Trump, yay! F Putin, Boo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. Screw the Republicans, ah! Hey! And same with the Republicans, you can just say Hillary or whatever. Like, oh, I hate Hillary, like a bunch of um. Need, need I say cult members? and I just kind of sit there and watch people like that who all want to be alike I want to be different like everybody else and I just scratch my head and like eh this doesn't work for me and then I'll see things that from a perspective of logic don't make sense to me right now what's going on I am very unhappy with the level of um censorship that's online to me the level of censorship I don't agree with censorship. I oppose censorship. I believe in the First Amendment. And the kind of cockamamie arguments that we're getting, people are like, "It's hate speech," but yet, when you look at what has happened when it comes to censorship online, what has happened? What has happened? We learned from the Twitter files. The Twitter files. I looked through them as much as I could. And what did what did what did we learn from the Twitter files? We learned that the federal government, the FBI had an incestuous relationship with at least Twitter, but from the looks of things, all of the social media companies. So the FBI had this incestuous relationship. It had like a portal, a, a, literally like a program, literally like a that where they could constantly communicate with with Twitter. And they were sending names, people's names, get rid of this account, get rid of that account. These are Russian whatever accounts. These are Iran, these are Chinese. And when we looked at them, Many, many times, they were just Americans. They were just people. Tens of thousands of accounts would be sent to Twitter, and they'd say, get rid of all of these accounts. Banish them. And many of them, when people started researching, was just like a lady in Waukegan, right? And Twitter said, okay, you're out of here. So effectively, what you had is the government can't censor you because that would be a First Amendment violation. So the government used Twitter to go around the Constitution and say, so if the government says you're thrown off because I don't like what you said, They can't do that. So they'd say to Twitter, hey, Twitter, throw them off because I don't like what they said. And Twitter would throw people off. Twitter would take all kinds of actions. To me, that's clearly a First Amendment violation. Clearly, there is a problem with that. Now, for starters, we got people who are a member of a team who say, I don't believe that. Why? And this is what I love. Because it came from fill in the blank. Glenn Greenwald, Jimmy Dore, Tucker Carlson, it came from whatever. And I think, you know what? Well, then you're an idiot. Because if you're standing there and there's there's roaring outside the door, and 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 Glenn Greenwald and Tucker Carlson and you walk get ready to walk out the door and they say, Hey guy, hey dude, what um I wouldn't go out that door. There's a werewolf out there. And you look outside, and sure enough, there's a full moon, and you hear some howling and rustling in the bushes. You're like, Yeah, well, it makes sense. There's a full moon, there's a bloody corpse. On the sidewalk, it looks like it's been mangled. I would say mangling is what happened to that bloody corpse. And uh, there's some weird furry looking dude at the end of the uh, sidewalk. Maybe he's got on a costume. I don't know. But here's the problem, dude. Glenn Greenwald and Jimmy Dore and Tucker Carlson told me I'm not listening to them they're right wing whatever they're fanatical left wing right wing all of the above I hate them I'm not listening to them this is the way cultish mentality works now right this is the way it's no there's no more looking out the window what do you see out there ah mangled body full moon hairy dude ah, i think i'll st- around inside of here and put like a salt pentagram in front of the door whatever the hell they do in those werewolf movies right none of that no no it's hey how dare tucker carlson and jimmy Dore and whoever tell me to do that i'm out you open the door and trust me it ain't gonna work well the hairy dude at the end the hairy dude The end of the sidewalk is going to do what hairy dudes at the end of the sidewalk do. And it ain't going to work out well for you. Why? Because you weren't a person who used critical thinking. We used to use critical thinking. But now we use boogeyman thinking. Doesn't matter what came. You see, our our team likes uh, censorship online. So since my team likes censorship online, I got to like censorship online. If my team suddenly opposed it, I would suddenly oppose it. That's why I ain't a member of a team. Ain't going to be a member of a team. I don't like these teams. They turn really smart people, really stupid, using all of those to come to a conclusion. Not, I'm a member of the team, and my team doesn't like that guy, so I'm not going to listen to anything he says because my enemy said it. That's the mentality we got in America. No wonder this country's going straight down the toilet. It ain't going down the toilet just because our leadership is so bad and God knows it is bad. It's going down the toilet because our leadership has turned our citizens into cult member morons who reject critical thinking and just simply say, "Uh, you, you give them some information, blah, blah, blah. You know the first thing they say? Who said that? Where'd you get that? Well, okay, I'd be happy to show you. Here's where I got it. Oh, came from foxnews.com. Oh, or came from MSNBC or came from Washington Post, came from RT, came from press, came from whatever. They don't stop to, well, before you, it's. there's nothing wrong with taking into context where it came from. There's nothing wrong with that, taking it into context. But that ain't the sole decider on whether it's right or wrong. And in America now, it's not even decided. you just dismiss things. Let's just dismiss it. The Twitter files comes back, and we find massive government overreach and intrusion. We find that literally the government was reading people's DMs, that the government basically was pressuring Twitter. Give me this information. Give me that. Take this person off. Take that person off. Remove this person. Um, here's some terms we want you to search for. And anybody that says this or that, get rid of it. If they say this about COVID, there are people that are thrown off just because they took the position on the wrong position on Ukraine, just because they're like, yeah, I don't think we're doing the right thing here. I think we're wrong. Oh, there you go. You got to be thrown off. You're not allowed. To, you've had a little too much to think, sir. Pull, I got to pull you over. You're going to have to take a test. You've had a bit too much to think. You're out of here. And our government was literally doing that.
0: Thank you, Garland Nixon. And coming up next on Arts Express.
2: Clean this mess up. You want us to break in a fourth time. Wait, what do you mean a fourth time? Nothing, Spy talk.
0: How does it work?
2: There's a chance I'd be going to prison.
3: Wait, what?
1: I really hope you understand the scope and
4: scale of this thing.
5: You tell those spineless, two-faced politicians, loyalty is a two-way street. Did
4: you just use the fun family outing to cover up some spice?
0: And those were scenes from the dramatic series opening this week, White House Plumbers. And what could be a more relevant time to revisit that notorious break-in 50 years ago, than with the current Pentagon Papers scandal at this moment. And our guest on the show, Yul Vasquez, portraying real life convicted Watergate burglar, Batista secret police, Cuban born CIA Bay of Pigs, and FBI operative, ironically freed from World War II Nazi captivity by the Red Army, Bernard Barker. Here's Yul Vasquez talking as well about his other current real-life portrayal as gangster Jose Battle in Godfather of Harlem.
1: We're not a bunch of bulls. Why
0: are you shredding money?
4: We're patriots acting in the country's best interest. What about the best interest of your family? They are trying to break us.
5: Howard, what have you done?
2: president is a good man. Between you and me, I worry about some of the people with whom he surrounds himself. Hmm.
1: Plumbers? Who fakes leaks?
0: Hi, and welcome to our show.
6: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Okay. What led you to join the production of White House Plumbers?
6: Well, uh, you know, it's a story I knew well. Um, I knew Gordon Liddy's book, Will, which I'd read, you know, when I was a kid. I'd, I knew that book well, um, which is just a fascinating, insane book. But uh, so, um, and there was, there was, there was players involved in that that I also knew personally, like Justin Theroux and uh, a couple of other guys. So, you know, again, the opportunity to play a real life historical figure uh, is always appearing, you know, um, that one is a real physical uh, transformation because I, I look, I look very, very, very different than the actual guy. So mm-hmm. that had its challenges, but I'm a uh, I think it I think yeah, that has has turned out quite well. I haven't seen the whole thing but I'm hearing good things about
0: it. And what intrigued you to portray Bernard Barker in White House Plumbers, one of the Watergate burglars, also an undercover CIA operative in plots to overthrow Fidel Castro back then, and the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba.
6: I knew the story of Bernard Barker. What a lot of people don't realize about Bernard Barker is that Bernard Barker was in a Nazi concentration camp. So Bernard Barker had, Bernard Barker grew, was born in Florida. He's Cuban American parents, born in Florida, and becomes involved in the Bay of Pigs because, again, like my like my uncle, my my own uncle was who was in the Bay of Pigs invasion. There was there were these Cuban Americans that wanted to take the country back from Fidel Castro. So that's always interesting to me. So there was, there was a personal connection there with Bernard Barker.
0: And what are the challenges for you of playing real people in these two productions? Well,
6: the the, the key to the key to doing that anytime time is is that is that it's handled with respect, and that and that the uh, that the writing supports, you know, that 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 it stands up, that it that that they're not asking you to do something silly that, you know, never actually happened or, you know, it's just, you know, it means the character. So, you know, you have a responsibility to present this person as a, as a real two dimensional human being, you know, flawed. And also a guy maybe has children, you know, you know, he, these guys like this are many things, just like, just like we are many things. You, you and I are many things, you know, uh, we are just multiple. We're We're multi-layered beings. It speaks volumes.
0: What can you say about the latest episodes of Godfather of Harlem, and what audiences can anticipate?
6: You know, I think audiences will be will be introduced to maybe a a part of history that maybe they they were not aware of. You know, which which is the Cuban American experience, and all through the eyes of 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 this gangster that I play called Jose Battle. Now, Jose Battle was he he had been in Batista's police, and then he comes and. Gets involved in the state in organized crime uh, through his organized crime connections that he had had in Cuba, and becomes a, a you know becomes a very powerful gangster on the eastern seaboard in the numbers racket. But he also was had been a veteran. I even had been in the Bay of Pigs and had fought to liberate Cuba from um, from Castro. So that's a part of his life that was very passionate about continuing that fight. So it's a man, it's a complicated guy in a way because he, you know, he's a gangster and gangsters generally uh, don't, you know, go around doing, you know, very nice things every day. So that's something the audiences will learn about this guy that they may may not have known about. Um, what can they expect coming up? Uh, they can expect a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of fireworks.
0: Uh-huh. Now, Godfather of Harlem is described as, quote, a collision of the criminal underground, Malcolm X, and the civil rights movement during one of the most tumultuous times in American history. What are your thoughts about this show's unique approach to depicting both? Like anything,
6: it's a it, it, it's a television show, you know, and I think it. But you know, any any television show has to take some liberties with stories and 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 put things in there that just to sort of explain the story. I think the approach of this. Sh- show is 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 very very smart, and I think that it's in the hands of, of not only very talented people but but smart and I think uh respectful people that care very much that that is portrayed in the in the right way and that uh, attention to detail is paid so that doesn't happen you know often mm-hmm.
0: okay, thank you you Vasquez, for joining us on the show
6: Prairie, thank you very much and you you have a fantastic day bye
0: and White House Plumbers opens this week. And coming up next on the show.
5: Hi, I'm Laurel Brett, author of The Schrodinger Girl. Coming up is the second installment of, or what it's worth, the opening story in WBAI Pacifica activist Mitchell Cohen's forthcoming book, The Rubber Stamp Man, Poems and Snippets. Where we left off, if you'll recall, Mitchell was aboard the D-train in Brooklyn. Recounting experiences there. Here, he continues that eventful trip.
2: Through the windows, story after story, rattles with me across Brooklyn. The D train, the ride to Coney Island that Bob Dylan found to be so interminable in visiting Woody Guthrie on Mermaid Avenue, bounces me back and forth between the decades and highly personal memories. Here is the park, a triangle across from Lafayette High School, where my dad whacked a softball over the fence. The ball continued over the train tracks and then carried over the fence across the street. A gargantuan shot that was jaw-dropping as the kids in the neighborhood followed the ball's flight. They said it was my responsibility to tell my dad that hitting the ball over the fence, to say nothing of hitting it over the train and over the second fence across the street, was, absurd as it sounds, an automatic out by our ground rules. Though worth all the glory and memories to be, here are the Marlboro Projects where I grew up after we moved from Brighton Beach. Down the block, I see LB Pizza and Spumoni Gardens. And here is John Dewey High School, which my dad, elected to the school board to fill the last of nine slots, fought to set up as a magnet school in the belief that children in the projects and not just the elite should have access to quality education. One day on the D train, I overhear a teen from John Dewey announcing that he'd just been diagnosed with lead poisoning, epidemic among black children in New York City. His friend responds as only a New Yorker can. Well, at least the lead will block the radiation from the bombs and power plants. Shazam! Yeah, dad! Geneviève tore herself apart over the meaninglessness of it all, as the world would be coming to an end in five billion years. Meanwhile, the meaninglessness in this world smacked us around as well. Having no witty words for her, we're back in the late 1970s, remember? I slid the Buffalo Springfield record for what it's worth from its sleeve and placed the vinyl onto the turntable, careful to match up the hole with the metal spindle, and cranked up the volume. Blast the darkness away with music, absurdity, bales of sarcasm, laughter, and protest. Flash forward 40 years. I was excited to discover the Pandora app on a lover's computer and no bent spindle to misalign the record. The new technologies do have some benefits. I began blasting for what it's worth over her wireless speakers.
5: they telling me i got to beware I think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look
4: what's going down
2: the moment she said, turn it down, she clearly had never attended the very loud Stony Brook where our music rebounded in every corner of the campus and stitched together the multiple threads of our movements.
5: Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Young people speak in their minds.
2: I knew we were star-crossed lovers doomed although I tried to prolong our relationship until she couldn't bear it any longer. In googling the song just now, I found the Wikipedia entry to be a revelation. I had a mistaken idea of the song's actual origins, so I'll offer an excerpt here. Quote, although, for what it's worth, is often considered an anti-war anthem of sorts, Stephen Stills was inspired to write the song, not about Chicago 1968, which many of us assume, but because of the Sunset Strip curfew riots in Los Angeles in November 1966. Flyers were distributed on the Sunset Strip, inviting people to join demonstrations later that day. That evening, as many as a thousand young demonstrators, including future celebrities such as Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda, who was handcuffed by police, gathered to protest against the curfew's enforcement. The unrest continued the next night and periodically throughout the rest of November and December, forcing some clubs to shut down within weeks. It was against the background of these civil disturbances that Stills recorded For What It's Worth on December 5, 1966. Stills said in an interview that the name of the song came about when he presented it to the record company executive, Amet Ertigan, who signed Buffalo Springfield to the Atlantic Records Atco label. Stills said, I have this song here for What It's Worth. If you want it, Emma Goldman wrote in her autobiography of returning to the apartment she shared with her lover, Alexander Berkman, on Manhattan's Lower East Side, only to be berated by Berkman for having gone to the movies with her other lover, Berkman fuming, roaring, jealous. But jealousy is not cool for good anarchists, so he turned it into a political tirade against Emma ranting that films are just bourgeois and that she squandered money needed for their new anarchist publication, all of ten cents. Berkman then bummed a few dollars and went down to the local pub. He ordered a steak, rationalizing it by saying, Revolutionaries need to eat well to keep up their strength. Emma could have looked into the future and rejoindered with,
3: Instead of spending our money eating steak, maybe you should practice shooting so you wouldn't miss capitals like Frick and not just wound them and then spend a decade in prison.
2: Which is what happened. Time is not sequential, it overlaps. 20-year-old Emma, who had fled St. Petersburg in Russia for New York City by way of Rochester, described the first time, 1889, she'd met Berkman
3: while the four of us were having our dinner, I suddenly heard a powerful voice call,
2: Extra large steak, extra cup of coffee.
3: My own capital was so small and the need for economy so great that I was startled by such apparent extravagance. I wondered who that reckless person could be and how he could afford such food. Who is that glutton?
2: Solotarov laughed aloud. Alexander Berkman, he can eat for three, but he rarely has money. I'll introduce him to you.
3: We had finished our meal and several people came to our table. The man of the extra large steak was still packing it away as if he had gone hungry for weeks.
2: And then she relays the incident that changed her life. Johann Most is speaking tonight. Do you want to come hear him?
3: How extraordinary. I thought that on my very first day in New York, I should have the chance to behold with my own eyes and hear this fiery man whom the Rochester press used to portray as the personification of the devil, a criminal, a bloodthirsty demon. I had planned to visit the office of his newspaper, but that opportunity should present itself in such an unexpected manner gave me the feeling that something wonderful was about to happen. Something that would decide the whole course of my life.
2: So when Berkman scolded Emma years later for wasting money on a movie, their whole encounter came full circle, as it began with Emma griping about Berkman spending money on his beloved stakes.
3: Why should one not love beauty?
2: I did not say one should not, Berkman replied. I said it was wrong to spend money on such things when the movement is so much in need of it. It is inconsistent for an anarchist to enjoy luxuries when people live in poverty.
3: Beautiful things are not luxuries. They are necessities. Life would be unbearable without them.
2: Yet at heart, Emma felt that Berkman was right. Revolutionists gave up even their lives. Why not also beauty? I was thinking of Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman and Johann Most, whose great granddaughter was a member of the Brooklyn Greens. I stood perplexed, watching the huge line of tourists outside of Katz's Deli and its three-inch-thick pastrami sandwiches. Total heart attack material. In prior years, the line wrapping all the way around the block and across the street would be greeted by a statue of V. I. Lennon atop a condo overlooking East Houston Street, known as Red Square, in front of a giant clock whose numbers were scrambled and spun backwards. The statue was removed a few years ago, so I guess now everyone comes to Katz's not to visit Lennon, but to practice their orgasm vocalizations, which, come to think of it, would make a fantastic TikTok follow-up to the scene in Katz's film When Harry Met Sally. Human beings make their own history, but they do not make it just as they choose. They do not make it under circumstances that they've chosen freely, but under circumstances already existing, that they're born into, given, and transmitted from the past. Dilemma after dilemma from yesteryear reemerges in the fierce urgency of now. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. And just as they seem to be occupied with revolutionizing themselves and social conditions, creating something that did not exist before. Precisely in such epochs of revolutionary crisis, they anxiously conjure up the spirits of the past to their service, borrowing from them names, battle slogans, and costumes in order to present this new scene in world history in time-honored disguise and borrowed language. Brighton Beach Avenue, one chaotic run-on sentence stretches back to the end of the 1940s. The Q-train track, slant of the sun, the angle of proximity to the ocean and boardwalk, lob hand grenades of memory from those first years across seven decades. The Yiddish I grew up with but never spoke, Brighton's great poets, Enid Dame, Donald Lev, Mrs. Stahl's magnificent baked knishes and the Charlotte Ruses at Sea Lane Bakery. Seventy years ago, peddlers, organ grinders, knife sharpeners, and sometimes a stray folk singer with guitar sang out in Yiddish. Pigeons colonized Brighton's sunless alleyways. Today, the men chew lamb dimly off metal skewers. The shops cater to women proud to strut about in the latest hats stalking the avenue, sashaying into Eurasia for lunch.
0: There's flies in the kitchen, I can hear them there buzzing, ain't done nothing since
2: One day when I, having hitchhiked into the city disheveled, hungry, and craving a Lower East Side slice of challah, stumbled into the no longer existing famous Jewish restaurant Ratner's, a few blocks from Katz's Deli on the Lower East Side. There was no line and no tourists. That statue of Lenin would appear as soon as one turned off Delancey and into the parallel Houston Street. The management and waiters at Ratner's, to say nothing of the customers, were already eyeing me with suspicion, so I innocently asked, hoping they'd give me a free slice, How much does that challah cost? Say it fast now. Dead silence.
5: So make me an angel that flies
2: oh, Historical encounters have a way of embedding themselves into hidden folds of our being. Songs and memories arising out of the steam of social conflict and personal experiences almost sixty years ago, let alone radical anecdotes like Emma Goldman's from a hundred and thirty years ago, burst upon us today, raising the same issues as they are rediscovered by new social movements. Today I revel in stories for their own sake. Forgive me, Berkman, their wordplay of poems, the unusual connections the joy of learning about our forebears, fascinated by how such stories can explode into meaning, rage, or joy, with or without moral lessons, across canyons of doubt, but bridging them regardless in this jumble of greater and lesser holocausts. The Scene, Bonnie's Grill in Park Slope, 2005. Out of the blue, I hear the almost never publicly heard Fug song, Nothing. Nothing, nothing, writing, nothing, Nothing, even arithmetic, nothing. nothing, Geography, philosophy, history, nothing. nothing.
6: Social anthropology, nothing, nothing. nothing.
2: catch my breath, look up, and at the next table is a family with three kids, all being led at the song by the dad and mom. I half recognize the dad, Steve, as one of the important poets in the Red Balloon Poetry Conspiracy, half a century ago. I too have become as unrecognizable as he is. I join in singing, of course. As I said, Tully Kupferberg's and Ed Sanders' musical absurdity was my collective's theme song. The kids look over to my table amazed that this old guy, me, actually knows the words to their song, their own private mantra since they've been born a lots of nothing. We all are enthusiastically pounding the table and shouting out the next line, just as the Red Balloon Collective had always done. Laughter, amazement, curiosity. To the young ones, I'm sure, the names were just funny-sounding, loony chants, devoid of meaning, the way my brothers and I would pray before bed every night. Sade, Ismarini, Matsalini, Makolaru, the newer generations carry on with the same insanity as the prior ones. I happened upon an old friend of Jean Biais and mine while online to use the bathroom at a croissant place in New York City during the giant rally for women's rights in 2018. Stunned and unsure, her name barely made it through my lips. Bonita, I stuttered. She stared at me, yes, and then, who are you? Bonita drove us to West Virginia to support the huge wildcat miner strike in 1978. Our collective sent truckloads of food from Stony Brook and on this trip distributed thousands of copies of our newspaper with their pictures and stories in it. So now, with my poetry muse returning after a pandemic's hiatus, I may no longer shoot for the Aesopian moral lessons in writing poems or in what I'm calling here snippets, but I have at least accumulated a hell of a lot of good stories for what it's worth. ¶¶
5: You've been listening to the second installment of, or what it's worth, the opening story from BAI Pacifica activist Mitchell Cohen's forthcoming book, The Rubber Stamp Man, Homes and Snippets. So tune in and change the world. stop What's that sound? look what's going
0: And now on Arts Express,
2: are you rolling? Scene one, take one.
4: Hello, hello, and welcome. Welcome to 32 Sounds. I was sitting at my kitchen table late one night thinking about these tapes, voicemail messages, that I saved over the years. How does a little piece of tape hold a person, make it seem like they're alive? I was wondering why sound has such a strange power.
7: Hi, this is Jack Shalom. If you're listening to me right now through the radio or on podcast, then you know how powerful and evocative our sense of hearing can be. It may seem contradictory, but my guest today is the creator of a new film, all about sound so i'm happy to welcome the director of the new film 32 sounds sam green hi sam hi jack well sam i i have a feeling you appreciate the irony of making a film about sound
4: yes of course the irony and the great creative challenge
7: what prompted this film what's your relationship to sound and i would think as a filmmaker you would be more drawn to the visual than the oral
4: Yeah, I've been a documentary filmmaker for twenty-five years. But the previous film I made was about a musical group called the Kronos Quartet, classical ensemble who've been around for fifty years. And in that film I tried very hard to get people to actually listen, to engage with their ears. So I was thinking about sound, and then during the pandemic, I was reading a book about a composer named Pauline Oliveros, right when the pandemic started, and I came across a reference to Anea Lockwood, a friend of Pauline Oliveros, and it said, Anaia Lockwood has recorded the sound of rivers for more than 50 years. And that sentence intrigued me. I love uh-huh. the sound of rivers. She's from New Zealand as a kind of classical composer, but you could call her a performance artist or a sound artist. And early days of the pandemic, nobody was doing anything. I just emailed her. I found her website. I sent her an email saying, Hey, could I talk to you on Skype? I'm interested in sound and she was wonderful she wrote back and said sure call me this afternoon i'm listening to a whole other world down there aquatic insects bugs fish i think of sound as being a channel of connection the film really came out of that and she's a main character in 32 sound
7: we are so affected by sound can babies hear in the womb
4: Well, the first sound of the 32 sounds is the sound of the womb. And it's a marvelous sound. And that sound was recorded by the wife of a famous film editor named Walter Murch. And he wrote an essay in which he says that sound is the first sense you develop. In the womb, you can hear the world outside, but you can't see or taste. And he also makes the point that sound is often one of the last senses we hang on to on a person's deathbed often they are only left hearing the world and i thought that that was profound sound is all senses are deep but sound is i think in some ways a particularly deep and and elemental one you
7: say in the film itself that sound is particularly evocative of time and loss and recall of the past i immediately thought of writers like virginia wolf who was so tuned into sound in her novels. And of course, Samuel Beckett's Crap's Last Tape.
4: Could you talk uh, oh, a little yeah. bit more about that? Sound is funny. It's I think in some ways, visual things are very easy to understand or comparatively easy to understand. Put your finger on them. We have all talked a lot about images and the way images work in our collective consciousness, but sound is Slippery and mysterious, and it's hard to talk about. And you can see a photo of of a person you loved who's gone, and it will bring them back to some extent. But if you hear a recording of their voice, you know you feel everything about them. You know the way they felt if you gave them a hug, the way their laugh sounded, the way they smelled. It sort of can completely conjure a person, and I'm not sure exactly why that is. I think again that's part of the sort of strange power of sound. So I've hoarded voicemail messages just for many, many years. From back in the time when there was, a, everybody had a answering machine with a little tape. And so I have hundreds, and many of the people in my life are gone. And so it's odd to consider those recordings. It's especially interesting, I think, it's only been a little over a hundred years that we've been able to record things. For 99% of the lifespan of humanity, When somebody was gone, they were gone. Nobody ever heard the voice of a dead person. Nobody ever heard music that wasn't being played right in front of them. And so recording, which is only, like I said, a little over 100 years old, profoundly changed the way we live and the way our relationship to time. But we are like fish in the ocean. We we can't see what the water is because we're so in it. In
7: the film, you present some very interesting people who have been obsessed with sound in different ways. And I was naturally drawn to Joanna Fang, a brilliant Foley artist. Yeah. Uh, Here on our show, I sometimes (laughs) create short radio plays. So I'm very interested in that. Could you talk about what Foley is and what a Foley artist does?
4: Yeah. In movies, a lot of times when you know, they're shooting a big Hollywood movie. If they're shooting somebody walking down the hallway, there's a lot of noise going on of the camera and the crew. And so they don't necessarily record the sound or they record the sound, but it's bad and they replace it later. And a Foley artist is a person who makes those sounds. So, for example, a classic foley artist job is is replacing the sound of footsteps. So Joanna Fang, who I feature in the film, is a great foley artist, and in her studio she has probably a hundred different pairs of shoes. Depending on the movie, depending on the kind of shoes the character's wearing, depending on the floor in the shot, she'll wear different shoes. make a different sound and she performs the sound. And one more thing that's interesting about Foley and she points out in the movie, oftentimes the real sound of something doesn't sound like what we think it should sound like. Right. And so she makes other versions of those sounds that sound more real than the sound itself. Yeah, I I love she says
7: that it's not the sound of a tree falling that I'm trying to recreate, but the sound of what a person thinks is the sound of a tree falling. Exactly.
4: So her version of a tree falling has like a chair scraping on the floor, you know, and all these other sounds that we would never equate with a tree falling. But when you add them all together, they, they do sound like what you think it should sound like, which is probably not what it sounded like, actually. <laughs> Tell us more about Aenea Lockwood,
7: Burner of Pianos and Recorder <laughs> of Rivers. When I say Burner of Pianos, that is one of the things that she did when she was, what, in her 20s, I, I believe?
4: Yes, but it's come, become a sort of iconic piece of music. I mean, she considered, it's, the piece is called Piano Burning, and it's taking an old piano and lighting it on fire. You know, it sounds sort of like a bad joke, and I think people react some way in some ways similarly to Piano Burning that they do to 433, the John Cage piece that's just silence. And, you know, people sometimes think of it as, as dumb or a, a, a bad joke or something, but it's a, it's a brilliant piece, especially if you think about it in its historical context. And Piano Burning is similar, and, and it's funny because it's become a kind of iconic avant-garde work that people cover. And so it happens pretty regularly that somebody will do a performance of piano burning and if you google it on or look for it on YouTube there's hundreds of videos you know and oh, it's, no not just some <laughs> yahoo in his front yard doing it uh-huh. you know this is these are actual performances
7: which is pretty neat Well you mentioned John Cage and and that famous 433 complete silence I sort of had a a funny thought which is if I'm quiet for four minutes and 33 seconds, have I violated John Cage's copyright?
4: That's uh, a good question. I'm sure there's some IP lawyers out there that would say yes.
7: Well, we've, we've had lots of innovations in trying to capture with technology the reproduction of our actual hearing experience. Yes. Uh, so take us through that the capture of sound through microphones
4: sure so it's interesting to me you know you start with edison and the phonograph and then the film touches on um the invention of stereo sound and that was in 1933 and more recently there's a kind of audio spatial audio technology called binaural recording binaural sound works through headphones but it doesn't really work through speakers so Cinema has not embraced binaural sound, even though huh. gaming has and VR has.
7: I'll just chime in with my two cents yep. about my experience listening to the audio uh, through my laptop computer. I was watching a screener of your film. I'm wearing headphones. And of course, I'm used to stereo, which separates right and left. But my experience with the binaural is that you're also separating front from back and so really you have a a full circle sure of and it's even directional top, information
4: top and bottom too so you can yeah. have things mm-hmm. feel like they're at your feet or up above yeah it's sort of a 360 audio experience which is neat and that's really how we experience the world well your film has a very personal
7: edge to it as well uh, among the voices we hear as you had mentioned are that of your a deceased brother on a phone answering machine cassette tape, and uh, also Black Liberation Army member Nahanda Abi-Odin, who you interviewed in Havana. Can you speak uh, about that? The film
4: uses some bits and pieces of other films I've made and films I've made that sound somehow was a part of. And when I, I was making this film, I realized, oh, that, that little section actually is meaningful. In the early 2000s, I filmed a lot with a, an American activist in Cuba, in Havana, named Nahonda Abiyadun. And I was very fond of her. And she had mentioned two songs that meant a lot to her. And so one time I made a mixtape and I, I said to her, can I f- put this Walkman on you and film your face as I play these songs? And one of them is Ain't No Stopping Us Now, but fantastic. Yeah. Song from the 70s, and it was so wonderful to see her face light up when she heard that, and and then to see how sound and music can transport us. And she was transported back to a specific time and place when the song was so meaningful to her, and so part of her experience. So I I, I used that section, and then later I, I included a voice message from Nahanda that. Huh. that I have in my folder of voicemail messages. So.
7: Yeah, you know, my, my mother died last year and I had her cell phone oh. and, you know, I've spent a long time thinking about whether I want to listen to her, even to her, you know, message or voice message. And I just can't do it. (laughs) I can't do it. So I salute you. I know how hard that must have been. In the film, you also have a sound archivist for the British Library Environmental Sounds Collection who uh, chooses her most striking sound. Now, I'm not going to give away her pick, but could we play a little game? You pick a favorite sound, then I'll pick a favorite sound. And we can go back and forth with favorite sound. All right, you go first. Oh, you want me to go first? A train in the distance.
4: Oh, we're, well, okay. I'm going to have to just match you with another classic. A river sound. The sound river. of a kind of uh-huh. burbling river. Uh-huh. Uh, an outboard motor. Ooh, ooh, okay. A dial telephone.
7: Yeah, as I recall it, you know, it brings back floods of memories. Uh, a dive into a pool from a high dive, the splash.
4: Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, we're. Good. It's funny because these are we're sort of paralleling here, but I'm going to say a tennis ball being mm. whacked back <laughs> and forth from left to right and right to left on a tennis court in a on a sunny. Hot summer afternoon. (laughs) What a fun game. Thank you for playing that. We could go on and on. The whole interview could be that.
7: Well, I've been speaking with filmmaker Sam Green, director of the new documentary, 32 Sounds. You can find out more about the film at 32sounds.com. That's the numeral 32sounds.com. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host,